Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Line, the sports podcast from PR Week. Welcome to episode six of The Line. I'm Richard Gillis. I'm here this week with Brian Moore, the former England rugby star, podcaster, broadcaster, writer, lawyer. Quite difficult to know where to stop on this list of... Qualified Neil Manicuris. You missed that one out. (laughs) Not not a lot of people know that. Um, So, welcome. We've been handed a news story. We're talking about rugby. Mm. And just in the last sort of day we've we've heard that um, France have won the right to host the Rugby World Cup in 2023. There feels like there's stories emerging already behind the scenes, what's going on, what, what's basically what's your take on that? There are always stories uh, about betrayal and votes promised and so on, just like the FIFA one but not as corrupt or, or not corrupt at all actually. And you know, the fact is that they had a technical committee. They went and inspected the venues. They looked at the bids very carefully. And I understand that the island bid came bottom in nearly every category of the three. However, it did have the biggest level of government involvement and support. And there was the romantic case for it being the whole of Ireland and the only sport that's ever unified Ireland, which is... Uh, not an insignificant thing. But then again, you know, from a world rugby perspective, why should that be a factor when you're talking about your World Cup? Um, people are talking about growing the game, but, you know, the game's already established in Ireland. If you were looking for a candidate to do that, none of the bidders would have been in the list. So the fact is that France is an economic powerhouse. It's a country which has hosted a World Cup before, as has South Africa. And I understand that the bid was generally the best. And when it comes down to it, World Rugby needs that cash because that's 98% of their income. And whatever you say about World Rugby, it isn't FIFA, it isn't bent, and they do make mistakes. But from that money, 
not only administering the global game, they do actually put money into developing nations tier two and so on. So if you have a World Cup like they did in New Zealand, which I thought was strange uh, and made very little money, it means that they necessarily have less money to go around for. I mean, Samoa is a prime example. World Rugby are trying to help them. But if you take away the financial element from a World Cup bid and just go on sentiment or development, then they don't have the money to do that. So I don't have a problem with it. You know, I, I, It'll be great in France, apart from the French, it'll be great. These bidding races are a mixture of money and the stories on top. Are we saying that the stories are irrelevant? Well, you know, there was a tweet saying that England backed Ireland in the first round, then they switched to France and they thank England for the support and so on. So as these things go, people will have been entertaining and have been discussing and saying, will you vote for us? People say, oh, yes, I will. Uh, and it turned out not to be that. I mean, the Welsh have got a lot of stick um, for voting for France, but I understand that they, the committee made, the, rec- the, the the body that looked at this, the ad hoc committee, made the recommendation that this was the best bid and they went with that. So, And did they need a bidding process to get to that point, do you think? Yeah, well, I'd say a bidding process. I mean, you put your, your, your bid in as part of your... Uh, desire to host it. They look at the technical document, they see if it stacks up. I hope they've done the numbers realistically. One of the doubts about the French bid was that the numbers seemed high in today's economic climate. But then again, um, if they achieve that, then they will have made a lot of money. And look, France is a great country and they've successfully hosted a Rugby World Cup before and other major events and it'll be fantastic. Okay. Any? What's the? Just finally on this. The just the. It's a you know in terms of the local impact of this to us in here in the UK. There's lots of, uh, you know, Wales voted for France, Scotland voted for France. Well, they would, voted. would be historically. I mean, very. Uh, <laughs> Is that going to be? <laughs> You know, no, well, look, the, these mem- memories are long, aren't they? Well, the Irish are unhappy. The Irish fans are unhappy. They thought they could, and they would have delivered a great experience. It's great going to Ireland to be very friendly. They would have had the GAA grounds. They've got the north-south dynamic. But again, as only one rugby country, you know, of 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 me- of, of hundreds, and you know, one of uh, only about eight of the major board countries. How far should that go? You know, politically, it's stable now. It's not quite like South Africa in '95, which was a definite unifying experience and was a seminal uh, social, political, a little bit economic, um, uh, symbolic World Cup for, for so many reasons. They're not in that position. But they're unhappy. I understand that. Um, OK, so let's, let's move on. We talked about world rugby. One of the other sort of jewels in their crown is sevens what's the future of that what's your view on that well, is sevens that... is very robust i mean it's got an international circuit already it's in the olympics um the commonwealth game and so on and, and it was one of the best supported funnily enough ironically through people through the turnstiles in brazil quite, quite out of all expectation because although brazil does have a rugby team and i toured there in 82 so i do know that you know it isn't the indigenous game miles down and yet it drew the crowds and as a spectator sport sevens is much easier to understand than 15s and 
it's an impact sport which you don't get much of in the uh, you know in the Olympics. Is it so? Looking at the the, the obvious comparable being um, twenty twenty cricket, and we've seen that grow, um, but cricket has India as the sort of economic yep. centre of it. Does, and that's the differentiator. Right. It, you know, you can earn so much money from a six week sojourn out there. As Ben Stokes knows, if he keeps himself clean, he'll earn more. But you will you want to have that in rugby. It's got the financial backing, and it's already. Uh, an established international circuit for players now you have to really choose when you're young if you go on the seventh circuit you probably well you almost certainly will not make it on the 15th so because the games are so specialized so those routes are now completely de- de- you know complete demarcation and the women's game which has raised a lot of uh talking points recently they were trying to back one then the other 15s for the world cup then the sevens in between and I thought they got it wrong. I think they've got it wrong. But their aim is to finance two separate games as well because they know the way it's going as well. So you were, you know, you're, you're, you were playing before the change to professional ranks in '95. It was just around the World Cup, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I knew you were in the professional, yeah, but just one. Yeah. Um, you did a very affecting podcast with Doddy Weir, which I recommend everyone to uh, to listen to. Um, one of the points he made was his experience of moving from amateur professional. And I, it struck me how n- not much fun it seemed. It seemed like the amateur, there was, we, we might romanticise the amateur era and the professional way, he was talking about training five times a day. Well, the and- thing is, if you, if you go into it from, from school, as they do now, into the academies and whatever, that's all you know. So the fact that you've got X number of training sessions or whatever during the day is your daily routine. You can't really compare it to anything else. If you were from the amateur era going into the professional era and you realised there was a lot more outside than, than just rugby, which after all is more complicated than football, but it's not rocket science, you, I, you know, you'd be, I think you'd be, be bored, frankly. But ha- not having had that knowledge, you just accept it as the norm because that's what everyone else is doing. So you had a job, obviously, you were a lawyer, yep. and then you were playing rugby on the side. What... You now look at what was the sponsorship? Let's talk about sponsorship in that era. What was what was We've the picture? We've got to remember, it, there was a, a big fight. It was a losing battle. We all knew that, apart from Dudley Wood and some of the people who effectively sabot- tried to sabotage the move to professionalism. Um, and the difficulty for them was, whilst the money was rolling in and they were saying to the players, oh, sorry, you can't get paid, only expenses. And by the way, we'll check every little bit. And then they did. And people turned around and said, well, there are millions coming into this. What is going on? We want, we, you know, this, is, oh, this is unfair, especially as you're demanding more and more. And when you come to us and your marketing managers, Mike Corley was then, said, oh, can I just have a snap for the sponsors? You say, well, I'm not getting anything out of it. No, you can't. And, uh, and it became a, a difficult issue. But, I mean, I, it's laughable now. But I, I remember when, and when the Nike rep came round and basically – this must have been unsold stock because it was it was rubbish <laughs> crap it was, and to see grown men from mature professions fighting almost over these seconds and thirds, it, you know, I, I remember thinking at the time this is pathetic. Whilst I was scrapping with everyone else, uh, I bet you won as well. Yeah, I, you know, the, the, the first, I mean, Nike were the boot sponsors all the way through. Um, the shirt sponsor, I remember, when Cotton Traders came in. Uh, the circumstances around that were questionable. Um, <laughs> 
That, and was, that was Frank Cotton and Steve Frank Smith. Frank Cotton and Steve Smith, yeah. yeah. And I uh, and uh, I remember on the morning of the World Cup final in 1991, they got the shorts out from Cotton Traders, and they were so ill-fitting that they had to go and buy about 20 pairs from a Richmond um, sports shop, white shorts, and saw the Cotton Traders <laughs> logo on in the morning. So, you know, that was real, real uh, you know, keystone cop stuff. And, and, you know, and now it's professional and everyone gets on with it and players get a lot of stash and they're very happy with it and so on. But it wasn't always like that. What about, let's talk about today's England team then, or it just generally, you know, you're looking at the All Blacks, you're looking at lots of marketable players. Um, what, where is that going? Do you think, I mean, obviously the football analogy is quite often used in terms of, well, this is... It, well, the, 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 the irony is, if you're a successful Premier, Premier League footballer or, you know, in, in one of the other five big leagues or in China... You, sponsorship is immaterial because you get paid so much anyway. It's just the really nice stuff on top. And you and yes, they earn a lot of money, the you know, market forces and so on. Rugby will never be in that position because the only country in which it's totally dominant is New Zealand. Their economy is very small. And it will always be second, third, fourth or fifth here. So whilst the amounts will be good relative to what people earn as an average wage, you'll never get the football things. And therefore... Yeah, it is important, and you see the the way that fo footballers are marketed uh, don't speak, basically, uh, which is a yeah. blessing, really. Um, you know, and rugby players, whether it's pejorative or not, usually because it, a lot of them go to public school and uh, grammar schools and whatever, they're more articulate. Uh, therefore, for sponsors, they've got a different sort of proposition. But I would say this to every, and this is the agent's um, responsibility, in my opinion. If you've got a good agent, they will ensure what makes a successful sponsorship in the end is you playing well. Unless you're just, for some apparent reason, extraordinary and other, uh, talented in other ways, what actually backs up whatever you do on a sponsorship side is the fact that you're playing in the international team at the highest level and you're playing well. And if they take their eyes off that and rush for money to start with inappropriately, it won't work. So, you know, building a, a longevity to come out with a, a media career or something akin to that where your profile is good depends on you playing for a long time and playing well. Um, and when you start off on this route, I think it's important for agents to look at the groundwork they do, establishing the you know, base of the character and, you know, profiles, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, you can major on being uh, articulate, having other interests, writing poetry, ideology. <laughs> Um, but the fact is that the game and your play has to come first. So, so someone like Danny Cipriani is probably the case study of that, maybe. I mean, it fit, there's a well, sense funny, I mean, that I, he's I, underachieved. I feel, I feel quite sorry for Danny in, in, in respect. I saw his debut and it, it was almost flawless. And he was a fantastic talent. He got a really, really serious ankle injury. I thought he was rushed back too quickly. And then he had a few problems but I, you know, I also say that you know, with, with Ellie, imagine he, he was brought up by his mom, so he didn't have the parental dad figure. Yep. His mom had to have two jobs because she needed the money, um, so she just wasn't there sometimes. So you've got that partial figure. You then find out at school that you're one, really, really good at rugby and very talented. Two, you're not that academic, um, not stupid, not academic. Um, three. 
you know, aesthetically you're, you're quite pleasing to the eye. And then you get all these things early. And it's very difficult with that background, I think, to expect someone to stay on the road. And I, if, if I had to point the finger at anyone in that, I would point at his agent and saying, you know, you, get him photographed with Beckham's you know, a fashion shoot when he'd only just started is a stupid thing to do. It really is. And then you've got the celebrity girlfriends and whatever, and that was overdone. Um, but once you set the, once you go, this is the point. If he'd have been kept not under wraps, but not in that sort of, if he hadn't shot for that profile and paparazzi stuff straight away, he could have bedded himself in. If he'd have been given uh, guidance in a sort of mentoring way, which I think lots of players need, irrespective of the personal circumstances, but certainly with his personal circumstances, you know, he might have played, embedded himself in, be a mainstay of the team, then everything would have come later. When it came the other way around, everyone knew who he was, and, and a lot, remember, there were jealous people as well, and mm. press as well, uh, don't, you know, the, the, the journalists are not, uh, you know, above this. Sort of, you know, who do you think he is, etc. He's only done this. Will we'll have a go at him? So every time there was a mistake, he flayed in a way that he wouldn't have been had he, you know, created a different image and had, um, you know, he'd, be, he'd been around longer. Yeah. There's like a, I mean, there's an industry waiting, I guess, for people like him, both for the agents, but there's also a sort of entertainment agent uh, world, isn't there? I mean, I'll there, tell you what, the, the, it's this. You can do all that when you finish. Yeah. that's That world is available to you. And the, and the more you've played, the higher you've played, the more you've established, the greater your kudos will be and marketability afterwards. You've got to be very careful whilst you're still playing. A, that doesn't take away from the training and playing. And B, like I said, that doesn't give you a profile which actively works against what you're trying to do on the field. So, you know, my advice would be to be bed everything in, take the sponsorships, that are, but be careful what you do. All this, you know, celebrity Love Island or whatever, you know, in the all these you can do these later. I don't see the upside to that while while you're playing, particularly those sorts of things. They may be high profile. They may actually be fun. I don't know, but. Uh, I, I can't. There's a very limited upside and a big downside. You, um, I can see you strictly dancing or in the jungle. Or I can dance actually. Yeah, I can dance. Really you not fancy that? I do fancy it. Yeah. You just, have you been offered? No, no, I'm being offered. Surely. No, no. It's very strange. They have, seem to have every news reader on God's <laughs> earth, but no, no cool commentators. But there you go. Um, okay, right. What about then? Let's let's talk about image in relation to. You know, you're a very prominent, um, say, writer, broadcaster in rugby, very respected analyst. Do you define yourself? Is there a worry? There's two questions. Do you define yourself as a brand? No. I, I've, never, I've never really thought, well, I've never really thought about it. I mean, obviously, you're trying to get jobs, but I've never thought of myself. I mean, if I if I was a brand, I wouldn't tweet like I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um you know, I'd be a lot of circumstances. And, and, and I, to a certain extent, I, I... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I just say, look, this is me. If it's good for you, fine. If it's not, I understand. Uh, but actually, I don't really want to, to you know, to, to be thinking about, shall I do this? Shall I say that? Um, because it might affect that, because I, that's no way to live, in my opinion. There, there is a sort of, I, I quite often, when I um, listen to Test Match Special, actually, is, is where I see it a bit, is a persona. There is a sort of, you're creating a persona, which I, I, and I sometimes wonder whether it's difficult to, to maintain that, or you then, it's almost like a sort of, an idea that you keep going, you've got to play up to. It's almost like you become a caricature of yourself. Not well, I, you I, I mean, I think, I think, in a limited sense, and only in relation to rugby, you know, I say what I see as honestly as I can, um, and I try to do that outside. I don't think I'm particularly different. And I, I think on Test Match Special, um, you know, uh, the blowers, one might have, and a, a couple might be uh, a caricature, and oh, were now. But I think it's just an extension of the people who they are. And you, you can soon tell. I mean, the thing about Test Match Special is it's on for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great medium to commentate on because you get defined breaks after each ball and over, so lots to say over a six-hour period. Um, so you don't have to give sound bites and, uh, you know, you don't have to be trite. And it allows the personality to come through. And you'll be soon found out if you, you, you know, you, people didn't like you, basically. Is there, in terms of, there was an interesting moment actually on this when John McCruick sued Channel Four, and one of the, one of the, um, it was to do with ageism, but actually within it, there was he was making a point that Channel Four, he had created a sort of buffoonish caricature, which Channel Four then wanted him to continue because it was his shtick. Yeah, and it's quite you know it's a, it's a very yeah, delicate that goes balance. out of fashion, and he went out of fashion, and that's a tough look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nothing to do with age. It's not, but it's it's one of those where you sort of think it must be tricky if you are John McCurry, actually. to He made a lot of money from being John McCurry, but Well, it's simple as this. If he felt it was going in a direction that wasn't him and he didn't like the caricature he felt he was being asked to play, then don't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's quite easy. Yeah, yeah. You should have told him that. I, I, I would take advice. He wouldn't have listened. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this episode of The Line. If you'd like to be involved in future episodes, either as a guest or as a sponsor, then drop me a line on danny.rogers at haymarket.com or look on the PR Week website for details. Um, Eddie Jones. I'm interested in Eddie Jones because I am interested in the whole area of the rise of the coaching class. And we've got this, we're, we're in an era where there's a sort of the super coach. You look around and you've got Gatland and Warren Ball and you've got all of this. Apart from England football. Y- yes. Well, that's an interesting 
you know, comparison in terms of the importance of the coach. Because, you know, from the Premier League, you've got the Mourinho's and Guardiola's. It's, it's sometimes difficult. You get you have to go five paragraphs down before you've heard a player's referenced. So they're the lens through which we're now watching sport. But are they that important, do you think? Yes, they are. And one of the things that the Australian Institute of Sport did so well, apart from setting up one of the first national centres for athletic uh, excellence, was in tandem with that, they set a coaching programme to develop and mentor and um, you know, make sure that their coaches kept up. And that's why you see Australian coaches in lots of sports all around the world. We don't have that here. They're trying to get that and it needs that. But if you think about it, why would you... Why would you not need a coach? Because as a player developing, even if you get to a stage where you're really very high up on it or at the top, are you saying you can't learn anything? The, the, the fact is, coaches are necessary. If we had a development system that was incremental, that was planned, that was uh, targeted, all sports in the UK will be better off. I mean, one of the things Stuart Lancaster tried to do was he's obviously looked at the All Blacks and, you know, the All Blacks are all about culture, isn't it? And the story of the All Blacks is is it's about the team and team rules and that they are self-governing. Yes, I mean, you can, you can re- create that to a certain extent. And there are facets of it which are universally applicable. But what you can't replicate is the importance of the game in the country to the people and the fact that you're exposed to that from an age where you can't remember anything else. And that's unique. Uh, that won't work here. But these, the bits about the way you bond teams, your responsibilities to the former players, to the players who are going to come, the fact you're just concerned, all those are really relevant. Um, it's a lot easier to develop them and maintain them, A, if you are brilliantly successful, but B, if every part of your country understands what's going on, which they do there. And so, so moving on to then Eddie Jones, he's done the one thing that you have to do is win. Yep. So that's, there's a halo around him from that perspective. Um, what are his pros and cons as, well, a, as a coach? But also I'm going to ask you about how he handles the media. Well, look, Lancaster did a good job in many respects. He just had a disastrous World Cup for various reasons. Eddie Jones has said publicly, and he's right to give him the credit, he would not have been able to do what he's done as as quickly as he's done it had Lancaster not got a lot of the components right. The fact is, it's very simple, actually. Stuart Lancaster came in after being an under-20s elite coach in one of you, straight international setup. It it was a temporary basis to start with. Jones, meanwhile, has been all around the world. When he was Wallaby's coach, he coached them to a, t- a team that beat the All Blacks five times, then was part of a South African setup that won in 2007. Then the Japan team, who were, the, to me, the story of the last World Cup, the game against South Africa was one, it was yeah. one of the most joyous moments ever, I've ever had 80 minutes. And so he's just a lot more experienced. And I found the difference between talking, and Stuart Lancaster has now gone back to Leinster as an assistant coach, and he's learning his trade. In a way, it would have been preferable had he done that before he was England coach because you tried to do the best he could at the time, but he made mistakes which I, I genuinely don't think he would have made had he had Jones's experience, you know, worldwide experience. And 
you know, Jones handles things in a very specific way. The difference I found between talking to Stuart when he was there, uh, his time of coaching development, was he talked in quite general terms, um, you know, in terms about culture and so on. Jones is very specific. Our mate, you know, he didn't fucking get his hand in the right place. You know, and he knows really detailed technical bits. In the same way that now I understand with Leinster that, that Lancaster is doing. In terms of the... He's brilliant with the media. Would you say that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I... I'm surprised you winced. No, no, because well, I just remember going for an interview which I wanted to make 15 minutes out of. After 11, I just like I said, uh, <laughs> I, I think I've asked everything. I, I turned to my producer. Yeah. Um, and that's because he answered the questions. And he answered them, but he answered them very... Cause I, I mean, this is an example. I said, are England's forwards at the moment, you know, capable of, of delivering the sort of go-forward ball that the Australian forwards do because of the way they take it in bonds. And he said, uh, no, but they will be. Which answered the question completely. Um, and maybe I should have asked an open question, which is my, my fault, but that's the sort of thing you get out of him. He doesn't try to evade things. Um, you get the feeling that he, he, you know, and this is the important thing, that he's telling you exactly what he thinks, that although there will be a veneer of um, a veneer of PR and he will want to respect some sorts of confidentiality between him and the team, barring those, he's as honest as he, as he can be. And in terms of the, the, the sort of move to football, we mentioned um, a few Premier League game uh, managers, but also the England manager's job from the fo England football team. I'm, there's part of me that wonders with someone with the with these big name coaches is whether or not they it's that difference of the responsibility on the part of the player and on the part of the manager how much they sort of devolve to the manager and how much you can actually do that when you when you're out there at a test match. Well, the two the two are very different. You know, in cricket, it's such a long game, so so technical. The players have to do you know have to on the ball, the captain's got a huge responsibility. In rugby, less so, uh, but more than football, where you see the tactical input being screamed from the, you know, yeah. from the technical areas at every point in the game. Whereas Jones and a lot of, and in my opinion, rightly, the coaches at the top rugby union teams are trying to say, look, you're on the field. It develops. I can't give you all the answers because it's such a quick game. What all I can give you are the parameters in which we will try and play the game the skill sets for you to do that. And then you've got to make the decisions because I can't do that. Um, and the teams that... Momentum is a big thing um, in sport. When it's going against you, one, it's difficult to recognise it on the field. Two, it's difficult to understand why it's happening. If you recognise it and understand why, then you've got to get the solution and then you've got to do it. And the best teams have the best decision makers who do all those four things. Is... It's interesting momentum, and you hear it a lot in the Ryder Cup um, in terms of movements of, you know, toing and throwing. Um, is it a psychological thing, or is it real? Um, well, it's both. I mean, in the sense that it's psychological, it doesn't matter, you know, because it's real to you. Yeah. And the fact is that if it's something that cows you and it's something that affects your inability, this is the teacup idea, you know, thinking clearly under pressure, uh, that Clive Woodward, um, um, you know, didn't bring in, but uh, uh, majored on. 
then you're not going to define the solutions. You're not going to do that. And the best players, um, the best tacticians, you can do that, but they do it themselves. There's a limited amount you can do from the bench anyway. And I just, you know, in football, I, in my opinion, it would be better if the players were try were, were taught to, to solve things rather than looking to the bench and saying, what do we do now? Yeah. After all, the pros, they've got enough time to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a... Just laid across this, and before we sort of finish this off, really, is the sports science. We, you know, we've talked about psychology, but there's also the rise of sports science. And, we, you know, you, you, we see coaches behind glass screens with laptops and, you know, it's almost like a sort of they're moving the, the players around the, the chessboard. Um, or at least that's the image. What, I mean, we're here in an advertising agency and, and there, is a, there is a divide between science and art in terms of well you know how much you can rely on the data and how much is actually in the in the just sheer imagination and leaps of faith etc that divide still runs through sport doesn't it well one of the problems with sports science is that for a long time no agreed standards people started in it that weren't very good they gave the people who were good, you know, a bad name. And, you know, there's a lot of players said, listen, you can't teach me things you know, in the classroom, which is a nonsense. But the fact is that certain things are really valuable, but you've got to be very careful about what you take out of them. They can tell you some things, they can't tell you other things. And one of the problems in rugby, certainly initially, was things you could measure, like bulk, power, speed. Everyone majored on those because... That's one way of saying I'm improving, I'm getting better. The creativity, which is actually what counts when you're big enough and powerful enough, is much more difficult to measure. And that's where the difference is now being made. So they're coming away, they're resiling from that slightly, and they, they should do. But the problem is, once you've hired all these people, they obviously want to justify why they've been brought on. And I've made a difference. Therefore, you're going through the... And one of the m- most difficult things for a coach to say is, I don't need to say anything. My bit, just leave it now. We can go back to that later. So rugby and other sports, you've got to be careful that you take what's really useful out of it but interpret it properly. And the, the thing about Jones to me is he's not um, old school uh, in every respect. He has very fixed ideas about certain things, but he's willing to listen to all new ideas but then take them selectively. He was talking about the way of transitioning in football, the fact that the ball turns over so quickly and that you're one minute you're attacking and defending and they do that much more quickly than rugby. But... You know, a lot of the stats, he said, I'm not interested in, you know. Meters made doesn't mean anything. All it means is, well, he said, "What you know, there isn't a column for, I didn't run into the man. I, I, I drew him and passed him out. It should be. And one of the interesting things, he's looking, trying to get away, and there's a basketball model, which I should recommend to him, um, of what threat you've posed, what part you've played. So you don't have, to be an effective player, you don't have to, have the ball or be the person who takes the pass. If you're there in a defender's eye line, so he has to guess, or you're there as a defender so he doesn't come down your channel, you've made the difference. And it's looking at things like that, uh, that he's trying to do, uh, which to me is far more important you know, than very simple things. You know, most meters made could be like Bastero because you never pass the bloody ball. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you always win the, oh, I made the most meters and most carries. Yeah, fine. We didn't get anything from it, though, did we, actually? So, so next phase is the is the sort of intangible area, isn't it? So the 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 sort of it feels like we're at the end of the beginning with this with, with relationship with data. Generally, is that you you can 
there are obvious things to measure, and we measure them, and everyone... Well, what know, we've done, what, what they've done, and why this is obvious, actually, you measure the easy things first but that you can see, and then you dig down, and you think, actually, that's more important, but it's really difficult to measure. And until we can, it's just a feeling, an ethereal thing, you get an impression, which is one of the vagaries of selection and so on. When you start to get more reliable things uh, and stats on that, provided you're careful about how you interpret them, that'll be much more useful. But this, the creative spark, and this is why, you know, in, fo- in any sport, football, whatever, the person who can just do things um, that sometimes are inexplicable to average players, and that, that, that creative spark and that knowledge um, is the most valuable thing. So there is a premium on creativity. Uh, yeah, and so there should be. Right, let's finish off then talking podcasts. Hmm. How have you found that? You've, you, no, it's great. I mean, you know, I get to say what I want for an hour. People, I talk rubbish and people pay me. I say, I'm amazed <laughs> they do it. No, I, I, tell, I tell you what's the nicest part of it. I've been out of the game a long time now. I mean, I've kept in touch with it. Insert, you know, I make sure I go to Queens and other places to look at the sessions, to speak to the coaches, to understand what's going on. So so that, you know, don't, and I'm, a lot of modern players might think, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, but I do try and keep in touch with those technical things. What I refuse to do is buy into the bullshit that says everything's special now and everything game's, you know, the fundamentals of the game are the same. The way you achieve it is different. But the great thing about the podcast is speaking to former and current players. You know, I, Danny Cipriani was uh, my co-host uh, last week and it was great to, to meet him. It was great to talk to him. Um, and it, genuinely, it's an honour to, 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 to do that and, and just see people in a different light, see how they perform in a skill which is un, uh, not necessarily usual to them and some are good and some are less good. But it gives you a platform and uh, it's not exactly work, is it really? <laughs> <laughs> I think, tell me about it is the phrase. The, um, is, it, is it yours? Is it, do you, is it yours that you're doing with the Telegraph? Uh, or yeah. Is it, yeah. yeah, I would say that, yeah. They might not, but I will. <laughs> I think my money's on you in that uh, particular battle. Right, we've come to an end. Thanks very much, Brian. Really Thank appreciate you. your time. Thank Enjoyed you. that a great deal. Um, this has been The Line, a collaboration between PR Week and Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency. Till the next time, thanks for your time. Cheers. The Line is sponsored by Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.